You know, I just, it's so cool to see all the babies here today. <laughs> like, God has so richly blessed our church with all these little ones. Amen? It's a beautiful thing. I am so excited and so happy to see all these little faces here. So if we have a little bit extra noise today, do not let that bother you because it's not going to bother me. Let's just rejoice that God has taken care of us. And be praying for these kids, right? These kids are kids we want to disciple. These are kids we want to see, hear the good news of the gospel from an early age and, and just be able to say one day with their testimony that, that they knew nothing but the goodness of God from the time they were very young. And so we all get to play a part in that. So pray for these kids and pray for the parents here at Faith as they, uh, as they raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. All right, church? That's your, that's your commission right now uh, in this moment. Um, as we get started today, though, uh, we're going to go ahead and open up our Bibles to uh, Nehemiah chapter 1 again. And we're going to pick back up in our series we started last week as we go through the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to read verses 4 to 11 here in just a minute. And this is a text that we could have approached in a lot of different ways today. So there may be some things that we may say like, wow, that would be interesting to go a little bit deeper there. Uh, there's some literary features we may not quite get to. There's uh, some history and some prophecy that we might not all the way get to. But hopefully we look at this in such a way that we see the story of Nehemiah progressing. And we see uh, God's redemptive story with his people um, building this kingdom and rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, this place of worship for God's people. And we see the story progress, right? So if you would just uh, get to Nehemiah chapter 1, and I'm going to go ahead and read verses 4 to 11 for us. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. These are the words recorded by Nehemiah, but these are the words of the Lord being spoken now. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, O, God, o Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. Against, we've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. As we go in this morning, church, I want to ask you, how do you deal with adversity? What do you do when you look around and you see the state things are in and you realize something is wrong, something's off, something's not right? And we look at ourselves and we ask ourselves, how did things get the way that they are? I think when our souls ache in those times, it's easy for us to look at any manner of things in this world to kind of bring us some kind of comfort. 
The world may have crumbled around us, but the best we can do for ourselves in that moment is, is to do what? Turn the TV on, right? Just check out for a little bit. Put on Netflix. Maybe run to the fridge and grab a snack and just fill our bellies so they feel a little, a little bit better in the moment, right? Maybe you like to go shopping. Spend some money that maybe you don't have, and for whatever reason, that kind of brings comfort as you, you bring in new things. There's all these things we do, right? There's all these things we do that we look to comfort ourselves when we're facing adversity. When we, we look around at the world and we, we realize something is wrong. And that's the amazing thing about this part of the story of Nehemiah today. This part of the story finds Nehemiah in verses 4 to 11, picking up uh, off of the report that we read about last week. And the report that Nehemiah uh, got last week of the, the Jews in Jerusalem and of the condition of the wall of the state of this city of God is one that uh, troubled him, troubled him greatly, because something, something was wrong. It wasn't the way that it was supposed to be. See, this man, Nehemiah, who is a Jew in exile, living probably what is a pretty comfortable life in this pagan empire, right, serving the king, living in the capital city, this biggest city in, in, the, in the empire. He's got it pretty good. But he still hears this report of his people and of Jerusalem. And he has this great desire to hear some good news about his people and about his homeland. But we know from last week he didn't hear what he was hoping to hear. And I'm sure Nehemiah was longing to hear and probably expecting to hear this good news, knowing that God had promised to return the Jews to Jerusalem and to restore the people to their land. God has promised this to Israel time and time again in His Word in the Old Testament, that He would deliver them from their captivity. See, before the nation even took possession of the land in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God tells the people at the tail end of this covenant they enter into him, that there will be curses that come from rebellion against the covenant. But he tells them, in preparation for this already in Deuteronomy, before they enter the land, in chapter 30, verse 3, that when they do, when they turn, that if they turn to the Lord, the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you back into the land your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. This was a promise given to Israel before they even entered this land of promise. Nehemiah, he's thinking of this text, he's thinking of these promises that God has made, and he's, he's probably thinking about other promises that God has made to the people of Israel. He's probably remembering the prophet Jeremiah prior to the exile happening in, in uh, chapter 29, starting in verse 10, where he says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place 
from which I sent you into exile. And Jeremiah 29 is a pretty popular verse that, that likes to get uh, plastered on you know, home decor at, at, at some of the uh, you know, um, um, hobby shops, right? But this is not a blank check. Jeremiah 20, 29 11 it gets thrown around um, kind of willy-nilly in our modern church culture today because it sounds really nice. It's not a blank check to look at God and say, look, God, uh, what, look at all the good stuff you're going to give me. Now, Jeremiah 29, 11, and we started in verse 10 and read to 14. This is God's promise to Israel that he will bring them back to exile. He will return them to this land of promise so that they would return to the Lord, that they would seek him in prayer, that they would be restored from this spiritual exile to return to true worship of Yahweh. That's Jeremiah 29. These are the words that are rattling around in Nehemiah's mind when he goes to his brother in verses 1 to 3, and he says, tell me about Jerusalem. Tell me about the people there. This is what he thinks he's going to hear, right? This is what he's on the edge of his seat waiting to hear, that God's people have returned to God's city, and it is a thriving place of worship, and it is a place that will serve to bring that blessing to the nations that was promised to Abraham. Imagine his disappointment. Because we know as we read the report that this story opens with, instead we find Jerusalem, instead of thriving, and this place of worship, this place who are coming before the Lord and who are seeking to bless the nations and to, to continue on that line of the Messiah, instead of finding all of these things that God has promised to do, Jerusalem is in distress. And its people are in trouble and his people are in shame. And this is a heavy weight for Nehemiah. And he responds accordingly in verse 4. With what? With weeping and with mourning for days. Nehemiah knows though that God does not lie. That Yahweh is a God who keeps his promises. And this is what directs his weeping and mourning. He doesn't crawl into this pit and stay there saying, oh, woe is me. He turns this, this sorrow that he has and he takes action on it. Because Nehemiah believes that God will return, um, return his promises to be true. This is the idea, I think, that sits at the heart of our text today. This is the idea that sits at the heart of our text. See, at the heart of this beautiful prayer that Nehemiah gives that we just read, we see him crying out to God. At the heart of it is Nehemiah's assurance that God will keep his promises as he works to build a people who love and worship him. This is God's story at work in the world, is it not, church? This is the story of God redeeming fallen mankind, reconciling people back into a right relationship after they've gone and been enemies at war with Him. See, God's promise from the moment Adam and Eve rebelled against Him in the garden was to deliver people from the curse of their rebellion, to redeem them and to save them from being His enemies and bringing them back to Himself. 
So in this text, we see Nehemiah longing to see the promise of God be fulfilled in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah knows and he trusts that God will make good on his promises. There's something there for us that we get to look back on at history too at this text. And we see God beginning to work in the life of Nehemiah to fulfill the promise to Israel. But it doesn't stop there. God is working to ultimately fulfill His promise to bring salvation to humanity. So we look at this text today and we can turn to the Lord and we remember His promise of salvation that has been won for us through the blood of His Son, Jesus. That's why we look at this text today and, and that's what we need to look at and we need to remember as we dig into Nehemiah's prayer. Is that God's promises never return void and His ultimate promise promise to us is that he will deliver us from sin and death and from the devil that he will send the the son of the or the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent the story of nehemiah is progressing us through that piece of redemptive history but now we find nehemiah filling his part in this story And I think it's in this main idea we have on the screen that God keeps His promises and He works to build a people who love and worship Him. And in the recognition of this ultimate promise that God has given us, it's here that I think we see the overarching theme of Nehemiah in view. Right? We see God building His kingdom. We see God at work in the lives of people to turn hearts away from the things of this world and to return them to worship of the one true and living God. So where do these things intersect today, church? God keeps His promises, and we see those promises for us today fulfilled in the person and work of His Son, Jesus. As we look at our text, I want to remind us of the question I asked a minute ago to start it. I asked us, how do we respond to things when they aren't going the way we thought and hoped that they should? Well, this is exactly where we find Nehemiah today. We find that he has been weeping and mourning for days, and his response is not to now shake his fist at God, but it is to go before the Lord in fasting and in prayer. I'm sure this is a circumstance that probably doesn't feel that unfamiliar to all of us, does it? We've all looked at our circumstances. We've all looked at life. We've all looked at things and said, God, why is this this way? This is not how this is supposed to be. And how easy is it in those circumstances to want to flee from God and to want to seek out some kind of of comfort that may feel good in the moment but doesn't bring long-lasting relief and long-lasting comfort, doesn't bring the hope of something that goes beyond the next few moments for us, does it? So Nehemiah here, he runs to God. He is going before the Lord, trying to draw near to Him, because Nehemiah knows that the solution to this thing that is causing this grief is found only in the Lord. It is Yahweh who promised to bring the people of Israel back to their land and to restore their inheritance as His people. You know, sure, Nehemiah could do a whole lot of things in this situation, couldn't he? He's hurt, and he's, he's broken, and he's, he's distressed over his people and this, this city that he has such a deep tie and connection to. He could go and start rallying the troops, couldn't he? 
He could go and start knocking on doors and say, did you hear what happened in Jerusalem? We need to do something about that right now. He could do that. He could start that way. He could go and he could start drawing up plans and, and drawing out exactly what they're going to do and, and the five points that they need to have and, and, and come up with a, a detailed plan of how they're going to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem and how God's people will be returned to him for worship. He could do that. Right? He could draw up his blueprints for the wall. The wall, it needs to look like this. It's crumbled down. I've got some experience or some thoughts on that. And he, could, he could draw it up and have this perfect plan for how to rebuild the wall. He could search out donors right, to help fund the work. He could find the people with the money in the community of the Jews to sit there and send the resources to Jerusalem to see this work done. He could do those things, couldn't he? And those are all things we would probably do too when we see a problem sitting before us like this, isn't it? But this is not what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah knows that if this work of building Jerusalem and restoring the Jews back to their city is to, to be successful, if it is to, to be God truly restoring uh, the people of God to their land, that it's only by the hand of the Lord that it will happen. This is why what's on the screen is there. Nehemiah's story doesn't start with him trying to galvanize support for this project. Nehemiah's story starts with him seeking God in prayer. Nehemiah remembers the words of Psalm 127 here, where it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. He knows that if he puts the cart before the horse and he takes the bull by the horns and he does all that he knows he is capable of doing to go and to see this city be restored to what he thinks it should be, it's going to fall flat on its face. And it has no chance of success ever because the work is not dependent upon Nehemiah. The, the Lord is the one who is building the house. The Lord is the one who is at work. And Nehemiah goes first to the one who is the source of the promise and who is the one who will be the source of the fulfillment of that promise as well. Nehemiah's story starts with prayer. I think it's a great, a great thing for us to reflect on and think on as we deal with the things we face day to day as well, is it not? It's easy to jump right in and to try to fix the problem. And sometimes what we really need to do is to go to our knees. And we need to weep, and we need to fast, and we need to pray. That's a hard place to be. It's difficult to think that way, and it's easy, like we spent the last three weeks doing, to look at prayer and say, God, what good is prayer anyway? But we see when God works, it's through His people drawing near to Him, relying on Him, trusting in Him, because He is a God who keeps His promises. So what is this prayer of Nehemiah we find in verses 5 to 11? I want to make a few observations for us. If Nehemiah's story starts with prayer, let's kind of take a look at this prayer and make a few observations about it. We've got a little bit of an outline up there for us too. We're going to hit uh, these three points, hopefully. Um, hopefully in such a way that it all makes sense for everybody too, right? That's what we're shooting for. What do we see in this prayer of Nehemiah? His story starts with prayer, so what do we see? The first thing I think we see, and that's point number one up there, is that Nehemiah's prayer is God-centered. When we started through our series in October, we called our exhortation to prayer, right? Where we, uh, each, each one of the elders, uh, took a, preaching elders, took a week to go ahead and preach on a short text. 
encouraging us to pray. The first one we started with was Luke chapter 11, and we started with the Lord's Prayer. And in this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples when they asked him how they should pray, Jesus said the first thing that comes out of, or the first thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth in this instruction is what? We know it, right? Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. We see in Nehemiah uh, chapter 1, verse 5, his prayers start in a very similar fashion, don't we? Verse 5, Nehemiah says, And I said to the Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. This is the opening line of Nehemiah's prayer. Where is his focus? What is he looking to? Who is he looking to right here with this prayer? The need is great. The sorrow is great. It is deep. But just like Jesus told his disciples, when you pray, pray, Father, who are in heaven, hallowed be your name. Nehemiah comes bending the knee before Lord, recognizing his position before God. It's not one who just sits there and, and gets to demand from the Lord, but he is one who is wholly reliant and dependent upon God. And well, Nehemiah laments for his people in the coming verses, this prayer is first and foremost fixed on the glory of God. This is a man who is broken and in anguish, who is coming before the holy God and is recognizing first and foremost whose presence he is seeking to draw near to. And as Nehemiah is praying, he is going to God based on what he knows to be true of God and his character. And this invocation of God's character and nature as he comes to the Lord in distress, it's actually setting us up for the next parts of the prayer. Right? It's framing the rest of what we're about to see in his prayer. Because he acknowledges God is holy, but I am not. And that's what we see in the next element of the prayer. We see Nehemiah's prayer is confessional. Nehemiah is looking to the character of God as he's opening uh, his prayer up here. And then he acknowledges that while God is those things, the people who are supposed to be God's people have not lived according to the ways God has called them to live. We find the Jews who are in exile separated from their inheritance. And these Jews who return to Jerusalem, they are now shamed and troubled. Verse 3 said, things are not going well at the moment. They're facing these big problems. Right? There's all kinds of needs that they have that would make their situation better. But Nehemiah's prayer here in verse 5 through 11 is acknowledging that there are bigger underlying issues that need to be dealt with inside the hearts of the people. Because Israel is where it is in the story because of their sin, because they have turned from the Lord. They have turned to false gods while they were living in this land that God had given them. Rather than worshiping this, this God who is all-powerful, who rescued their ancestors from slavery in Egypt, gave them this land in which to dwell, made them rich and prosperous in this place, they turned from Him. And they turned to idols. They turned to the false gods of the people who had been living in that land before God had given it to them. So rather than being a light to the people that they were placed in the middle of, they fell into the same darkness. And they turned from God. And we read Deuteronomy chapter 30 earlier, where God said, when you fall away like this, Israel, 
I'm going to take you out of the land. And you'll be in exile. But when you turn to me, I will return you to the land. So Nehemiah 1 verse 6, Nehemiah prays not for the stuff that he needs to get the job of building the wall done, but he prays a prayer of confession. Verse 6 says, I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of Israel which we have sinned against you. There's people who've sinned against the Lord and are far from Him and have lost their promised land. Nehemiah is confessing. He's coming to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you, Lord. We have fallen short and you have, you have made good on your promises, God, while we have fallen short. That's the beautiful thing about Jeremiah chapter 29. We read that a little bit in our introduction. If we think back to what verse 12 said, God in this section, in the middle of this promise to restore the exiles to Israel after 70 years in Babylon, He says, then you will call upon Me and come and pray to Me and I will hear you. Nehemiah is praying and confessing the sin of Israel and confessing his personal sin because he remembers God's promise here. The people are not pursuing the Lord in the land. The exiles have begun to return, but worship has not resumed. Prayer. The Lord is not being sought in prayer. And so Nehemiah remembers these promises of God and he remembers that the Lord is there and that he can call upon His name and that the Lord has already promised the people that He would hear them if they would return to Him in prayer. So Nehemiah comes, and what does he do? He prays a prayer of confession. Maintaining his humility before the Lord, he comes to confess that Israel has fallen short of what God has called him to be. Nehemiah is not a man here who comes to the Lord demanding and commanding his own way. He's not a man who's coming to, to just speak something into existence. He's not, he's not a man here who is saying, Lord, you promised you're going to give it to me? Give it to me now. This is a man coming before the Lord broken because he sees the part of God's promise to take Israel out of the land still in effect knowing that Israel has not returned to the Lord so that they would see His promise of deliverance and return to this place come to effect. Nehemiah is interceding on behalf of his brothers to ask for forgiveness. Not because it is owed to him and his people, not because him and his people have worked hard to make up for all the wrong they've done. We know they haven't, right? We know they haven't done that. But he's coming before God to confess their sin. We know in the New Testament in 1 John that we're told that when we confess our sin, God is faithful and He's just to forgive us our sin. Nehemiah prays this prayer of confession because he believes God will keep His promises. This isn't about what Israel's done trying to get right with God. This is about coming to God because he knows God has promised salvation. God has promised deliverance. 
from these circumstances they're in. And Nehemiah knows that if they confess their sin as a people and they turn back to the Lord, the Lord will restore the people to the homeland the way he had always promised to do. Nehemiah is interceding for the people of Israel here. This is a prayer of confession, but this is intercession for them. He's confessing the sins of their nation. And when we see the heart that he has for his brothers in Israel and the longing that he has for the nation to truly repent and to be restored, Nehemiah's prayer doesn't stop with Israel. Because Nehemiah comes to God and he confesses his own personal sin before the Lord as well. These verses here are are not just about the corporate guilt of Israel. Nehemiah does come as one to intercess for his people, one to come as a representative for his people before the Lord and to seek forgiveness and a restoration of the promises. But Nehemiah confesses at the end of verse 6 that even I and my father's house have sinned. Nehemiah needs to be forgiven as well. He needs to be forgiven of his sin too. And how easy is us for us to look around us, right? And to just say, oh, Lord, those people, just bless their heart and forgive them, God. Doran smiled when I said, bless your heart. So that was good. It's a nice southern phrase for everybody today, right? But it's easy for us to look at the world around us and to, to point the finger and to sit there and say, yep, you people are the problem. Lord, please forgive them. And what do we do? We point the finger. It's someone else's fault. Someone else is to blame. Someone else is the cause of this. And we fail to confess our own sin. Because it's the sins of the people who are on the other team that are actually the problem right now. And God, if you would just forgive those people and they would repent from you, then Lord, yeah, things would be okay. I know that. Now we need to pray like Nehemiah prayed. Lord, forgive me, for I have sinned against you. We can pray for our nation. We can pray for our church. These are good things. Don't get me wrong. These are good things for us to do. But it is your sin as an individual that keeps you separated from God. And it is Him working through Christ by faith and repentance that you, you are born again and made a new creation in Christ. Then you, no matter your culture, no matter your nationality, no matter your ethnicity, no matter how you've chosen to identify yourself before Christ, you, in turning and repenting and putting your faith in Him, you can be saved from your sin and delivered to eternal life with God and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! If only we would turn. If only we would repent. If only we would look to Christ to save us from our sin. It's the same confession, the one Nehemiah makes, we all have to make as Christians, as Christians today. Lord, forgive me of my sin, because my greatest problem isn't all the things in the world that I look at and try to blame for my problems. My greatest problem is my separation from you, Lord. I have sinned against you. Lord, forgive me. If you've done that today, you have a great hope of promise that God has given you for eternal life. And if you have not done that today, I I plead with you to turn to Christ. 
Run to Christ. Cling to Christ. He will wash you clean of your sin. He will remove the dirty rags that we come before the Lord dressed in, and He will clothe you in His robes of righteousness to make you right before His Father, to put you in right relationship with God again. That is our greatest need today. That was the greatest need of Israel in that day as well. And this is what Nehemiah is seeking. He's seeking God's promise to restore the people to himself. The last little element for us to look at the prayer today, and that's point number three there, is that Nehemiah's prayer is grounded in God's promise. I've used that word many times probably already too, that word promise, right? But this prayer is one that is grounded in the promise that God has given them. It's in verse 5, Nehemiah, or verse 5 says that God is described as the one who keeps what? Covenant and steadfast love. Covenant is a promise that you enter into to keep uh, elements of things, right? And God is faithful to keep that covenant. He is steadfast with his love to maintain his promises. In verse 8, Nehemiah prays that God would remember the word he's already given in regards to Israel's disobedience and its restoration. God has spoken. And Nehemiah is saying, Lord, remember what you said. Remember what you said. You have promised us, Lord. We come to you trusting that you will make good on those promises. In verse 10, we recall that Yahweh has already redeemed this people of Israel many times before. This people that Nehemiah is a part of have seen God work to deliver them time and time and time again. Even in spite of all of their turning, even in spite of all of their walking away, God continues to make good on His promise to redeem and to restore and to save Israel. Nehemiah does not come before God in this prayer to tell God about how great Nehemiah's plan is and about how if God sends Nehemiah out that all the stuff uh, Nehemiah will do for him, God won't be sorry, right? Yeah, if only God gives Nehemiah the money and the people and the resources, then Nehemiah, he's going to get it done for you, God. That's not Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah's prayer is all about remembering what God has said and what God has done from His promise we find recorded for us throughout the Scripture. This is the uh, prayer of Nehemiah, where it is grounded and where it is rooted. It's not in his own work, his own ability. It is rooted in the fact that he knows God will keep His promises and the promise is there for Israel to lay hold of. This is Nehemiah not leaning on his own understanding, but leaning on the promises that God has made to save his people from their shame and from their trouble. This is why the story, too, is not just about building a wall, right? That was sort of a key piece of last week's uh, sermon, was uh, when people look at Nehemiah, the one thing we always generally remember is what? Nehemiah's building a wall. Funny thing, I was in the car with Timothy on the way home last week. I said, so what I preach on, Timothy? See if he was paying attention. Give him a quiz. And he said, you preached on Nehemiah. I said, okay, what else about it? Uh, something about building a wall. And I was like, son, we got to talk about your listening skills, buddy. But it's not just about building the wall, is it? And we see that in this prayer. 
We see Nehemiah leaning on the promises that God has made in order that God not just build a wall or build a physical city, but that God would reestablish his people in this holy city. It's the people who make up the kingdom of God. And the people are scattered. They are lost and they are afraid. And there are many who are still unrepentant. But Nehemiah's prayer in verse 8 is that God would remember the word he commanded concerning Israel and, that, and what would happen in their disobedience. But not only what would happen in their disobedience, that he would remember his promise to restore his people. It's a prayer that Nehemiah makes. It is saturated from start to finish in the promise of God to draw Israel back to himself to save them from their exile. This is his prayer. It is founded in God's promise to redeem the people to what he called them to be. Nehemiah's prayer is grounded. It is rooted in the promise of God. That is who he is looking to to do this work. That is who he is looking to to see the people restored. Not in his own work. It's not in what he can do. But it is in God's promise to bring salvation. That's Nehemiah's prayer. And it's easy for us to look at Nehemiah's prayer and to say, man, okay, maybe if I just emulate that, then things will go right, right? That's what we have a tendency to do is we find somebody in the Bible who does something well and we sit there and we take it and we say, okay, how do we, how do we make this a checklist for me to, to go and say, this, this is the right way to do it? And Nehemiah is, Nehemiah is a great example of a godly leader. Nehemiah is an example of a man who, who wants to lead in a godly way. Make no mistake about that. But this story is not an allegory for just how we should live, but it is real history where we see God at work in his story of redeeming his people. And there are still elements, though, that I think are very applicable to us today, right? We can look to the example of Nehemiah. We can't turn it into just a nice, easy checklist, but we can see Nehemiah's example as he pursues the Lord and see some things that I think we can um, practice in our own lives, too. The first thing that I got on the screen there, too, is that I think in Nehemiah we see an example of going to God in prayer. Nehemiah is a beautiful example of this, right? At a time where, where things are not the way that he wants to, the time he feels this anguish and this sorrow, and uh, things are not uh, going the way that they should be going, Nehemiah doesn't run from God in that moment. He runs to God in his sorrow. We see Nehemiah as a man who persists in prayer. Right? We ask that question time and time again. I mentioned it earlier. What good is prayer anyway, God? I'm praying and I'm not hearing anything from you. Right? Where's that audible voice that's going to come down from heaven and break the roof and tell me exactly what I need to hear in this moment? Right? Nehemiah doesn't get that either, does he, church? But he persists in prayer. He persists in pursuing the Lord in this way. And we see him as he prays that is asking for something ultimately that's what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a great example, I think, for us in pursuing God in prayer, to encourage us to pursue God in prayer and to see that God does keep his promises and that we can come to him and those prayers do not return void. We don't always like the answer, do we? We don't. 
We don't. But we can persist in coming back to the Lord time and time again, knowing that, God, your promises do not return void. And my hope and my faith and my trust is in you right now. We see Nehemiah doing that. We see God working and taking Nehemiah and using him uh, for this work of building his kingdom, rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem and, and drawing the hearts of the people back to God. That's what God does through prayer. He draws us to himself. This is a great example of going to God in prayer. I think the second thing for us too is we see what repentance looks like when we're truly pursuing the Lord. Nehemiah, I don't think he's faking it here. <laughs> right? I mean, he's anguished, he's, he's troubled, he's fasting and praying for days. And what does he come before the Lord with? He comes before the Lord saying, Lord, we have sinned, forgive us. Father, I have sinned, forgive me. There is sorrow over what he has done. It's not just that the walls tore down. He is, he is realizing right now before God his soul is not right. And that he needs God's grace and forgiveness. That this is his chief need. We see the sorrow of sin being expressed here and we see Nehemiah, his response when he sees the sin of Israel and crying out to God, God, Turn us from our sin. Return us to you. Call us back to yourself so that we may be your people again, that we may draw near to you again, that we may enjoy the promise again. This is what repentance looks like for us as Christians today. Do we have that kind of sorrow and anguish over our sin do we have that kind of desperate cry to return to God when we know we're far from Him and we're wandering away from His fold and wandering away from His ways? Are we coming back and we crying out to Him? We see repentance here. That's a great picture for us to see because we need this day by day by day, don't we, church? We need to return to the Lord day after day after day. So we see what repentance looks like here. That's a beautiful picture, and it's something that I think we can look at and we can look to uh, hopefully see in our own lives as well as we examine ourselves as Christ followers. The third thing we have up there is that we see Nehemiah trust in God's promises. We see what faith and prayer grounded in God's promises and the trust that he is faithful. We see what that looks like in the life of Nehemiah. We see what that looks like in this prayer of Nehemiah. See, Nehemiah was desiring to see God's promise of restoring Israel to its land and seeing the people return there in order that they would worship Yahweh. God saw this promise through, didn't he? We're not quite there with the story yet, but we'll see it. This is the hope that Nehemiah has, the, the hope that God is going to fill this specific promise and the people have a, a moment in the story as they get back into Jerusalem and the walls rebuilt where things look like God's people might finally be on track. You know, and of course it only takes a couple of page flips to see that the people of Israel quickly turn away from their God again. Does that mean God's promise has been in vain? No. We get the benefit of looking back in history, don't we? 
We get to see God keep His prom or make His promise. We get to see God keep His promise, and we get to see what it looks like when people respond faithlessly. When we respond in our human flesh, and we say, "God, we've seen, we we heard it, we've seen it, and we're trying hard to live it, but man, I don't know. Don't know if it's for me anymore at this moment. This other thing sounds a whole lot better, doesn't it?" But I think in the story of Nehemiah, we see faith and prayer grounded God's promise, and we see that we can trust that He is faithful to see those promises through. I think the second bit there that we, that we cling to is that we have the greater fulfillment of these promises today. Right? I'm encouraging you, church, to, to know that you can trust the Lord, that He, will, he is faithful to see His promises through, that He will not return void on what He has promised us and given us. And church, we have the greatest fulfillment of God's promises right before our eyes today. Because all of these events with God's people are leading to the day, 400 years past Nehemiah's time, where God, the true Redeemer of His people, will send His Son into the world, not so that He would condemn the world, but that He, uh, through Him, the world might be saved. And God's promise of returning exiles to Him for worship, God's promise of setting captives and free and prisoners being released, released, God's promise of redeeming men and women from this world and from the curse of sin. We see that greater fulfillment of these events recorded for, that are recorded for us in the Old Testament. We see it plainly before our eyes in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And now we look to that promise and we put our hope and our faith in Christ alone for salvation from our sins and reconciliation with God. And we, like Nehemiah, we look at the world around us and we say, God, we are holding fast to your promises as we live in this world as exiles. We live as people who are in this world, but not of this world. And we live out this promise, not to just hunker down and hide until the end, right? Just waiting for a rapture to come and take us out. We don't live in this world afraid like that. No, we live in this world believing the promise Jesus gave us when He said He will come back and believing the promise Jesus gave us when He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Those are the promises that we hold to today, church. Nehemiah held to the promises of God and he saw a small glimmer of that fulfilled in his day. But all of that was a piece of God's story of redemption for all of humanity. And we get to see that picture in its fullness today. We have the greater fulfillment of these promises before us right now today, church. So hold fast to those promises. Cling tightly to those promises. His word does not return void. We finish this up today. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, it finishes with sort of a strange little thing that almost feels like an addendum. You know, people are like, why is that there, right? It finishes by saying, now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah giving us a little bit more insight into his position and what he's doing, what it is, the, the place the Lord has put him as he is an exile in this Persian empire. And we can look at that and say, like, okay, that's an interesting little tidbit. Thanks, Nehemiah. 
But this is, this is setting us up for what's to come, right? This is one story that's going all the way through. We finished the first kind of two pieces we want to look at. Next week, the story is going to continue. And this is kind of a little bit of a teaser trailer for, for next week, right? I was cupbearer to the king. But it's not just a teaser for, for what's to come. No, we see so much more just in that one little statement. We see in the life of Nehemiah that God is already at work to provide what is necessary to fulfill his promise. Nehemiah didn't take that into his own hands in this prayer, did he? He didn't sit there and say, God, just give me what I need and I'm going to go get it done. This is not Nehemiah's work. Nehemiah is trusting the Lord to do the work. And God, at the tail end of this promise, uses the words of Nehemiah to show us he, he is already at work to provide exactly what Nehemiah and the people need to return to him. That's what we're going to look at next in the story, church. For us today, though, as Faith Baptist Church, I want us to remember God has made provision for us. He's, he's in the story. He's getting ready. He's providing for Nehemiah. He's, he's getting ready for the next piece. But God has made provision for us all here today, church. He has already given us His Son who has given Himself to die as a sacrifice to save us. He has come as a ransom for many. He has come as a ransom for us. And He's left us with the promise that he will return for his bride. And God's promises in the day of Nehemiah did not return void, and God's promises will not return void for us today as well. Will you pray with me? Father God, we come before you humbly. Father, we come before you knowing that, Lord, we are, we are sinners who only get to do this, who only get to draw near the throne of grace through the blood of Christ. Father, thank you so much for your promise. Thank you uh, that you did not just leave us to our own devices all the way back in the garden, but God, you promised from that moment a deliverer. You promised a Savior. And God, you worked redemptive history out to get to this point, Lord, where your son would be born, would grow, would live, would die, would rise again. So that, Lord, we would be saved and we would be reconciled to you, Father. Lord, let us live in light of that today. Let us live knowing that we get to draw close to you. Father, let us be people who love you and who worship you. And Father, please, as we read your word, let us hold fast to the promises you give us because your word never returns void and you are the one who keeps your promises. Let us believe that today. Cling tight to that today as we worship you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.